We're going to be studying Mark chapter 8 this morning. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We are going to cover the whole chapter, so buckle up. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and as you're revealed in the pages of Scripture through the Gospel of Mark, we ask that you would speak to us, and we pray we wouldn't miss what you're sharing with us, deeper truths about who you are, surrendering ourselves afresh to you to follow you. So we invite you here, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us. Remove distractions. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Missed it. Sometimes in life, we just miss it. We don't understand what someone is telling us. We walk away five minutes later and it dawns on us. Sometimes we miss the opportunity that is in front of us. But more often than not, we can miss what God is trying to teach us, what he is trying to show us. That's true of the disciples in this chapter. They miss the truth that God is sharing through the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. They also miss Christ's message on suffering. Christ, for the first time, lets them know, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer. That doesn't settle too well with Peter, and he misses that truth as well. So we're going to look at three things this morning. If you're taking notes, I'll be sharing as we go through three things that I think that are important from the text so that we don't miss it. We don't miss what Christ is sharing with us. Verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but this is the feeding of the 4,000, apparently the multitude is with Christ for three days hearing the word. Can you imagine three days of listening to the word? And you thought 40 minutes was difficult. 45 minutes was, was difficult. Shows our hunger for Christ and for truth. Three days has gone on and Jesus says, we need to feed these guys because they're going to faint on the way home. That They're not going to be able to make it home without some physical nourishment. Christ's priority is the spiritual teaching, but he also cares for their physical needs and he has compassion upon them. And that's true in our lives. Christ cares for your whole being. First and foremost, the spiritual. But then he also cares for the physical. He has compassion towards you. The disciples, in verse 4, answered him and said, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? You may anticipate a different response from the disciples because of the feeding of the 5,000. They saw God do a miraculous miracle to feed that multitude, but they're back in the same place of saying, How could we feed this group? There's no way that we could feed this amount of people. And we're the same, aren't we? God meets us in a powerful way. We get to a similar point of need and how quickly we forget. In verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Christ intentionally asks the question, how many resources do you have? What do you have here that could feed this multitude? And they respond seven. Christ has a way of pointing out our weakness. 
making us aware of our weakness so that we can rely upon his strength. He's really good at that, isn't he? In verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Last time, 12 baskets of leftovers. This time, seven baskets of leftovers. Now those who were eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmethua. Jesus is going to comment more on this event in just a few more verses. The attention now goes on to the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. They come with an attitude of disputing, of of testing, asking a sign of Christ. Where have these guys been, honestly? Jesus just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. And they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, could you really prove that you're the Messiah? Could you really prove that you're the Christ? Every time we turn in the gospel of Mark, in the gospels in general, we see Jesus doing miraculous things to prove that he's the son of God, to prove that he is the Christ. We contrast the Pharisees last week when Jesus went into Gentile territory. Remember what they said about Jesus? He does all things well. They weren't asking for more. They were resting on what they were seeing right in front of them. We look at Christ then speaking to them further in verse 12. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. In the previous chapter, Jesus sighed as well. That time it was out of compassion. I think this time Jesus is sighing because he's grieving. His heart is broken because of their unbelief. What's it going to take, guys, in order for you to believe? Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 says this, parallel passage. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Speaking to the Pharisees, saying, you're approaching this with the wrong heart. If you're testing me, asking for a sign, calling them evil and an adulterous generation. But then also he says, there's going to be no sign given except of the prophet Jonah. You're going, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why does he bring up Jonah? Remember Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days until he got right with the Lord? That's an example of Christ being buried three days, not in the belly of a fish, but in the earth to then rise again from the dead. And he says, that's the only sign that's going to be given to you is the resurrection. Our faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God. He said, in three days, I'm going to rise again, predicted his type of death, then predicting his victory over the grave. And he says, if the resurrection of Christ isn't enough for you to believe, then what is going to be enough for you to believe? For some, you may be approaching God this way. 
God, if you do this, then I'll believe. And I believe from the scriptures, God's response to you would be, I've already done enough. I sent my son. He died for you. He rose again. When is the resurrection of Christ going to be enough for you? For others of you, you go, it's more than enough. It's more than enough for me to believe. Because I realize the proof of the resurrection of his deity. In verse 13, And he left them getting into a boat again and departed to the other side. Seems like Jesus is always in a boat. He's going from one side to the other. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Sounds like a group of guys, doesn't it? They've got seven baskets of leftovers, but they somehow end up on the boat with only one loaf of bread. It dawns on them. They begin having this discussion with each other. Hey, didn't you bring the peanut butter and jelly? What's, what's wrong with you, right? To their credit, there's a lot of things that are happening and going on. Verse 15, then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus takes every opportunity to share truth. Here they are on the boat. Christ is disturbed by the heart of unbelief in the Pharisees, and he begins to speak to the disciples and gives them a warning. So first thing to write down to not miss it is realize the danger. Realize the danger, the leaven of the Pharisees. Of course, leaven is yeast. A little bit of yeast affects the whole loaf, doesn't it? It's an amazing agent. The warning is a little bit of compromise, a little bit of false teaching, a little bit of the wrong focus is really going to impact our hearts and our lives. He wants the disciples to not go down the same path as the Pharisees. Pharisees were great at religion, but They made the word of God of no effect. They added to the word of God and they took away from the word of God. They focused on the outward instead of the inward. And now their hearts are filled with unbelief. Just because a person goes to church, just because someone does religious things, doesn't mean that they're in relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion kills, but a relationship with Christ brings life. And he says, guys, don't go down this path of legalism. We have to be careful of that. We have to be very careful that we don't begin to add to God's word, take away from God's word. There is a movement in our country where we are not reverent to the word of God, where we're putting ourselves above the word of God. We got to know the word for ourselves, each of us. Know what it says for the sake of relationship. God, I want to know you. And also, I want to hold to what your, your word says, or we're going to go down this road of the leaven of the Pharisees. But what is the leaven of Herod? What is that all about? We know that Herod was into himself. He was into sin. He really loved the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He had John the Baptist beheaded because John the Baptist was questioning his sexual sin. And so we see a warning also is don't let that yeast and the love for the world enter into your heart and your mind. Seems like for believers, we tend to err on one side or the other of this, where we become overly prideful, overly legalistic, overly religious without a relationship with Jesus Christ, begin to think we can judge the word of God instead of the other way around, pious, or someone goes, I'm going to love Christ, but yet live in the world. 
And that's the wrong understanding of a relationship with Christ. God doesn't want us to have a life that looks like Herod. Amen? He's called us out of the world. He's called us out of sin to be in relationship with him. And I think relationship with Christ is the answer to both of these warnings. You're not going to go the way of Herod. You're not going to go the way of the Pharisees if you're walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. But that will cause us to miss the truth that God is trying to teach us if we have the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod. Verse 16, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. (laughs) See, they missed it. They totally missed it. Here Jesus is giving them a warning about the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're like, man, he's upset because we forgot lunch. There's, there's, not a, there's not enough bread here. There's 12 guys. We've only got one loaf of bread. He has to be talking about the fact. He knows everything. He knows the fact that we, we didn't bring, bring lunch. And this stirs Jesus, and he begins to address it. But Jesus being aware of it, he's always aware of it. He can't hide anything from him said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Jesus is going, guys, weren't you there? I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. I fed 5,000 with five loaves. And now you guys are stressed out about lunch. I got lunch covered. I can take care of this, even though you made a mistake. Focused on the physical instead of on the spiritual. But how many times do we make the same mistake? How many times do we miss it? God provides. Isn't he a good provider as our father? Provides in a supernatural way. Then we get to a point of need and we forget about his provision. So Christ asks this question. He says, why don't you get it? Why don't you perceive? Why did you miss this? And he addresses the condition of the heart. He says, your heart is still hard. The heart will determine whether we're hearing and perceiving what God is teaching to us. Having eyes you do not see, and having ears, do you not hear, and do you not remember? So they're seeing, but they're not perceiving. They're hearing, but they're not understanding, and they didn't remember. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves from the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Peter, you answer. <laughs> like nobody wants to answer this question. How, how, many, how much leftovers were there, guys? Oh yeah, there was 12. How many disciples? 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Second thing to make sure we don't miss it is remember his faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness. He says, do you not remember? One of the themes in scripture is for us to remember because God knows that we're a forgetful people. With the children of Israel, when they came into the promised land, God stopped up the Jordan River. They walk across on dry land God said, take one man from every tribe, 12 tribes, bring a stone, the largest stone that you can from the bed of the Jordan River and make a memorial so that you'll remember my faithfulness of what I did today. And that's what God wants us doing in our lives. When there's a feeding 
of the 5,000 type of moment, we need to remember that. We need to write it down. We need to take a picture. We need to have something that's in front of us that we can see that's going to help us remember or we'll completely forget like the disciples. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. Do you know that the primary reason for communion is what? To remember. Jesus knew that our tendency would be to forget the most important thing, and that's his death upon the cross, his resurrection. So he says, I want you to do this often in remembrance of me. We remember things in a greater way if we can touch it, if we can feel it. So God says, I want this to be symbolic of my broken body. This bread represents my broken body. So you can reflect on my suffering upon the cross. This cup It represents my shed blood that every time that you take of of communion, you're thinking of the blood that was shed for you you, for you to be forgiven. This is the cost of, of your forgiveness. So we slow down, we pause, and we remember what what Christ has done so that we don't forget. It's a very important part of our Christian life and our relationship with the Lord. I believe it takes time. It takes time. We've got to process it. We've got to process what, what just happened here. God worked in my life. There's 12 baskets of leftovers. There's seven baskets of leftovers. We started with hardly anything. I got to allow that to impact my heart, impact my life. Sometimes even we're distributing the bread of life. We tend to call it ministry. The disciples got to have the front row seat. They got to break the bread and see it multiply, break the bread and see it multiply. And oftentimes we see God do work in someone's life. We get to distribute the bread of life, but we haven't taken the time to process it and we don't remember it. We will miss it. We will miss what God's wanting to teach us if we don't remember his faithfulness. So how has God been faithful to you this year? How has he been faithful to you this week? How has he provided for you? How has he seen you through? Write it down. Good timing going into Thanksgiving. Allow Thanksgiving to continue on into December, into 2017. Being thankful is a very practical way to remember his faithfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 puts it this way. Who delivered us from such a great death and does deliver us in whom we trust, he will still deliver us. He's delivered us in the past, forgiven our sins. He's currently delivering us. We're confident that he will deliver in the future. In verse 22, then he comes to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Another example of a group of people bringing a friend in need to Christ. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Christ again is getting one-on-one with someone, getting personal with someone. Grabs this blind man's hand and says, we're getting away from the multitude. We're getting out of Bethsaida. I want to do a work in your life. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Man, Jesus is just always spitting on people. And all this, what would Jesus do? I've never heard anybody say, man, I'm going to spit on somebody, right? Imagine Christ spitting into your eyes. And this guy's blind. He can't even see it coming. I'll save you all the sound effects. 
right? Next thing you know, here he is. He's got the saliva in, in his eyes. Can't put Jesus in a box. This man looks up and he says, I see men like trees walking. You think Jesus got it wrong a little bit? He's like, man, that, that whole spitting in the eyes thing didn't work out quite the way that I wanted it to. This is intentional by Christ. He first has this man to see people like trees. And then we'll see what happens in the next verse. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. I believe this blind man had two problems. The first is he couldn't see physically, but he'd also developed the wrong view of people. In his heart, he was viewing people like trees. God allowed him to see the condition of his heart as he opened his eyes. People are just trees. People are a renewable resource. I have no problem cutting them down. And that may be true of our lives this morning. We've only received partial healing from the Lord. The forgiveness of our sins, but we've yet to realize how God views people. Hey, they're created in my image. I sent my son to die for them. I love them. So do you see people like trees? Do I see people like trees? Or do we see them in the image of God? Two lessons for this man as he walks away from Christ. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Christ repeatedly through Mark gives this instruction of it's not time to share this news yet. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? Do you see the, the style of Christ's teaching? Do you see the style of his discipleship? The disciples are walking with Jesus. They're following Jesus, spending time with Jesus. As they travel, Christ is teaching. He asks this question, who do men say that I am? The geographical region is important. Caesarea Philippi is a community with a river that flows out of a rock, a huge rock fortress. And God is going to speak of the spiritual rock, the confession that Jesus is the Christ as he addresses the disciples. Who do men say that I am? So the answer, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Everyone has an opinion upon Jesus. I've never met somebody that has no opinion of Jesus. Have you? I, I don't think about Jesus much. Everybody has a, a thought to his identity. Some thought it was John the Baptist raised from the dead, Elijah raised from the dead, or one of the other prophets. It gets more personal in verse 29. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This is the most important question you'll ever face in your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what does your spouse say? What do your parents say? What do your brothers or sisters say? Your friends say? But what do you say about Jesus? This morning, who do you believe that Jesus Christ is? Only you can answer that question for yourself. Your answer will determine your eternity. It determines whether you go to heaven or hell. It determines whether you're forgiven in your relationship with Christ. 
It forms your identity. What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Christ means Messiah, literally the anointed one. We have all of these prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah, the Christ. And Peter gets it. He understands it. He says, you are the Christ. Matthew chapter 16, the same event, Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But the Father has revealed this to you. For us to understand the identity of Christ, it's the work of God in our lives. Then Jesus goes on to say, upon this rock, they're physically looking at a rock, but he's not talking about the physical rock, nor is he talking about Peter. But he's talking about the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God, that he is the anointed one. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Some think that Peter is the foundation for the church. We'd be in trouble. Guys, we would be in trouble. I love Peter. I can relate with Peter. But Peter is not the foundation of the church. What's the foundation of the church? Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And upon the understanding of who he is, Christ will then build his church. This is a wonderful testimony to the power of Christ. The church has fallen. Church history is not pretty. But God has been faithful to continue to build his church, hasn't he? And Jesus will continue to build his church in the days to come. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. It wasn't time for Christ to be revealed as the Messiah. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Christ has not mentioned to his disciples his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection up to this point. Once they realize that he is the Messiah, he begins to instruct them of his suffering. This is why Christ came. This was his mission. This was in his heart and mind. That he would be the ransom for our sins. That he would pay the price. Notice the progression. It says, suffer many things. Rejected. Killed. And then rise again. The crucifixion didn't have the final word. The final word is the resurrection of Christ. Can you love the worship song that we we sang, the last song right before announcements? It really describes the suffering of Christ and the victory of Christ through the resurrection as he rose from the grave. Why do you think Christ would instruct him on his sufferings at this point? Because when they came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, they were thinking, okay, he's going to overthrow the Roman government. In the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus comes as a conquering king to rule and to reign. That's what they we're looking at. But in the first coming of Christ, he came as a suffering servant. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're Israelites. They're under the domain of Rome. Rome mistreated them. So thinking, this is great. Christ is going to set us free of the Roman Empire. In verse 32, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So this is the second instance where the disciples miss the teaching of Christ. Peter doesn't like what he's hearing that Christ is going to be killed, that the Messiah is going to be killed. 
I'm sure he has the expectation that, oh, Christ is going to kick the can of the Romans and I'll be in his cabinet. I'll take anything. I'll take the defense attorney. I'll go in charge of the intelligence. But this is going to be great for me. This is never a good scene for us when we say, hey, God, can I have a word with you? What you're doing isn't the right thing. You really need to do it this way. It's the conflict. It's the war of the wills. It's, it's our will against God's will. We can relate with Peter. We've done this. We do this. We try to be the Lord's counselor. In verse 33, But when he turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The whole group of disciples knew how Peter was feeling. They were probably feeling the same way. So Christ addresses Peter in front of all of them. He rebukes Peter. We need to be rebuked by the Lord sometimes. It's his love that rebukes us. Our selfishness, our agendas, our wants, our desires need to be confronted by the Lord. He'll do that in his care for us. Strong rebuke for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Could the message be any clearer from Christ? He didn't sit down and say, hey, let's get a cup of coffee and talk about this. Is he saying that Peter is Satan at this point? No. Is he saying that Peter is demon-possessed? No. But he is saying that he's following the influence of Satan at this moment. James chapter 3, the end of the chapter it would be good to spend some time with that later today, tells us that there's two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom from above that's pure, gentle, willing to yield. In every moment, God has his wisdom that's available to us. But it also tells us there's a wisdom that's from beneath, that's demonic, that's from Satan, that's built upon selfishness. So both sets of wisdom exist in every moment of time. And sometimes we listen to the wisdom that's from above, and sometimes we listen from the wisdom below. This section of scripture is amazing because in one moment, Peter has the height of his relationship with God. He understands that Jesus is the Christ. He is commended by Jesus. He's like, the Father spoke this to you. What an amazing moment with Jesus. And then the next moment, the very next moment, Jesus goes on to talk about his suffering And Peter starts listening to the wisdom from beneath, begins to rebuke the Lord. And how quickly we can go from God's wisdom to Satan's wisdom. I'm sure there's been many times where we have a great moment with the Lord, and then we go right from that to have an extreme moment of selfishness. It's a very fine line, isn't it? What really convicts me is the end of verse 33 says, you're not mindful of the things of God, you're you're mindful of the things of men. This is where Peter went wrong. He's putting his own comforts, his own security, his prosperity in front of the will of God. And that's what feeds into our selfishness is when we're mindful of the things of men instead of the things of God. In verse 34, when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, He said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
The third thing, and I think it's the most important for us to not miss it, is to respond completely. Respond completely. Jesus is instructing now Peter out of his selfishness. Saying, this is what you need to do. Come after me. If you desire to to come after me. By this point in our study of Mark, do you desire to come after Jesus? Have you seen enough of Christ revealed where you go, man, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to pursue you. We know what it's like to pursue something, to pursue a relationship, to pursue a degree, to pursue a job, to pursue a sports team. I mean, the way we talk about the Broncos, it sounds like we're on the team. It's like, well, we got to buy this Sunday, you know? We're pursuing that. It's fun. It's, it, it's enjoyable. And this speaks of Christ being attractive to us. Christ getting our attention. And, and we want to come after Christ. Then we get into what that really means. It says deny yourself. Check your selfishness at the door every day. Christ is calling us in a direction that's contrary to our agenda. Contrary to our wants. What I experience is my sinful flesh and my selfishness is alive and well every day. I'm looking forward to when I go home to be with the Lord and no longer have to deal with my sinful flesh. But until then, it's going to rear its ugly head every day and needs to be denied. I need to remind myself, no, Eric, you're not in charge. Jesus, you're in charge. We deny ourselves and then we take up our cross. The very nature of following Jesus means that we realize we're giving up our life. Christ is taking up his cross. He's calling us to take up our cross, to embrace suffering, to be willing to die if that that is necessary. A life of surrender to the Lord and follow me, follow me. This is the Christian life in living color. Follow Jesus. What's he doing in this room right now? What's he going to be doing this afternoon when you're driving home today? Follow him. Where is he moving? As you study the gospels, what do you see him doing? Okay, Jesus, I'm following you. You are the Lord of my life. Do you see how close it was for Peter to miss this? Here he is spending every day with Jesus, but he's getting the wrong understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He's putting these expectations that are from this world upon it instead of truly surrendering to the Lord. We could miss it as well. We could get off track. We could not understand what the Lord is calling us to. We respond completely. Has huge benefits following Christ. So worthwhile. In verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you live for yourself, you will be the most miserable person on the planet. We know that to be true, don't we? Think about yourself. Love yourself. Selfishness is number one. Try to hold on to your life. You will lose it every time. But... If you lose your life for his sake and for the gospel, if you say the purpose of my life is to know Jesus and to make him known, this is for everybody. This is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. We're sharing that with people. Then we're going to find life. 
Jesus is not the cosmic killjoy. He's not like, okay, I came to be the Lord of your life, to take all of the joy out of your life. Go ahead and walk through life as a giant Eeyore. I accepted Jesus. I'm going to die. I'm okay with that, you know. He said, I have come to give you life and to give it to the full, to give it more abundantly. And the abundant life is found in surrendering to Jesus. You're going to follow something. You're going to follow someone. This morning, you're following something. And only Christ leads to freedom. Everything else is going to lead us to a place of depression, destruction. But it's Jesus in living for him and following him that we find abundant life. Amen? Can we say amen? In verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? God gives a special distinction to the soul. It's your mind, it's your emotion, it's your will. And you can gain the whole world. You can have possessions, popularity, position. But if you don't have Christ, you're going to have a destroyed soul. We know this to be true. Look at those who have gained the whole world that are celebrities in Hollywood. Do they have healthy souls? Do they have souls where you're like, yeah, I want that soul. I want that mind. I want that emotion. I want, I want that life. Look at a lot of our sports stars. Not all of them. Some of them know the Lord and are living for Christ, but a lot of them don't know the Lord. And it's fun to watch the game, but you're like, I wouldn't want that life. No, thank you. I don't want that soul. That soul is dying on the inside. And they're looking for life in football and basketball and baseball, fill in the blank. So you can gain the whole world, but what can you give in exchange for your soul? Could you take a $72 million contract and get your soul back? Could you, could you buy it back? Could you restore your soul? What causes a healthy soul? It's a good shepherd named Jesus. It's Psalms 23, where he says, I'll restore your soul. That condition of, of our soul that comes from following Jesus. In verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I don't want to ever minimize God's word. The message here is really clear. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because otherwise he'll be ashamed of you as he comes. Another way to put this is don't reject Christ before men because then he'll reject you before the Father. I like the way Christ puts this. He's like, why would you be ashamed of me in this sinful generation? Why are you afraid of what culture thinks and your friends think and your family think? It's just a sinful generation. Take a stand in this sinful generation. Be a light, and then the Father's not going to be ashamed of you when he comes back in his glory. Does this mean God can't forgive us of times that we've been ashamed of him before men? No, he absolutely will forgive us. But we want to go on record of saying, I'm with Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm fallen. I'm a sinner. But he loves me. He died for me. He rose again. He's my Lord. And I'm with Jesus. Am I a Christian? Yes. Am I a follower of Christ? Yes. Has he saved my soul? Yes. I'm not ashamed of that. And that's what Christ speaks to us. Don't miss it. How does that work out in our lives? First, realize the danger. 
Don't go down the road of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Church, remember his faithfulness. I'd encourage you to to stop and pause. We're going to take communion. Billy and the worship team is going to lead us. The elements are here in the front as well as there's tables in the back. Go get the elements and sit down and think and remember Jesus, your broken body, you being whipped, nailed to the cross, your blood that was shed for me and remember his faithfulness. The disciples had the memory of 12 baskets and seven baskets. We have the memory of the bread of life that was slain for our sins. Remember his faithfulness and then trust as we go forward, God, you're going to be faithful in my life. And then lastly, respond completely. We need to respond afresh this morning to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've decided to follow you. And I want to make that choice every day of my life. I've decided to follow you. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following you. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and let's prepare for communion. Jesus, we thank you that you are life. And in following you, it leads to abundant life. It's not easy. It's totally contradictory to our flesh and our selfishness. It contradicts what the world says about life, but we want to respond afresh to you this morning and declare that we have decided to follow you. Would you bless this time of communion? Would you allow us to have peaceful souls, quiet souls, that reflect on your faithfulness. Would you minister to us? In Jesus' name, amen.